Okay, you can uh, turn in a bi- your Bible and find a couple of verses, uh, John chapter 6 and John chapter 12 and John chapter 20. So those are three places. We'll look at John 20 probably first just for a minute. So my, my subject is clarifying Calvinism, clarifying Calvinism. So the focus is to help you understand what Calvinism actually believes, and that includes the assumptions. So whether you're a Calvinist or not, we make assumptions. But you need to know what those assumptions are. And then there's what's called entailments. And entailments are, if this is true, this is true. You can't escape it. But many times we're talking about the beliefs but we're not talking about the entailments. And so sometimes I refer to these entailments as disquieting realities of Calvinism because they don't get talked about, but you can't believe this and not this. And so we'll see some of those. Uh, As for your patience, uh, the subject's been talked about for a few hundred years, and uh, so I don't know all of the things that have been said, you know, in those hundreds of years, nor can we replicate them. And I'm going to say some things uh, that I think will be easy to assimilate, but some are not. And and unfortunately, the first thing I'm going to have to delve into are the different views of free will. Uh, If I I could, I would put that off till later, because it would give you confidence as we went along. It was pretty easy to assimilate some of this other stuff. This is pretty deep and difficult, but we have to start out with it. So sometimes it kind of you think, well, if this is it, I'm not going to be able to make it. But if you can hang in there, that will become clear. You just have to get a handle on the views of free will or moral freedom uh, between the different positions. And then my contention is, so I gave you a few verses, but to go right into looking at verses back and forth, remember, people have been doing this for hundreds of years. Everybody has a verse, and everybody has an understanding of a verse. So my contention is, if you don't deal with the assumptions and entailments, and you you bridge the language barrier, I call it, and deal with some other issues, you never know what the Calvinist means by what they say. And I'm not dealing with motive. I'm dealing with just the facts. And the Calvinists may not even know. So you're discussing this verse, and you're saying this, and they're saying, you may think you agree, but you actually really don't, because what's entailed in your words are the opposite. So so my contention is you have to get some of these things straight, and then we will, even if I have to fast forward, I will show you how this plays out in a couple of verses that we'll look at uh, with well-known Calvinists. So a couple of preliminary things. I'm going to use the term Calvinism and extensivism. And uh, extensivism is a term that I use. And the reason I chose it is, as as a Baptist, we're not really Arminian. Uh, We have traditionalists. We have uh, some that are Molinist. And then we just have basic uh, Baptist belief. But I, I chose extensivism because when I interact and write about Calvinism and stuff, which I do quite a bit and, and know quite a few Calvinists, 
it, it's a non-pejorative parallel term because Calvinism is an exclusive view. God only chose some in unconditional election. He only regenerates some. He only died for some, so it's an exclusive view. And what I'm arguing is an extensive view, that it extends to every person who's ever been born. So it's, it's, a, it's a very good parallel term that's not pejorative or derogatory in any way. I use it in both a narrow and a broad sense. Today I'm just going to use it in the broad sense, which would, in, it would make it a term that would be a positive for non-Calvinist. So when I say extensivist, you can think non-Calvinist. Because again, Molinist, Arminian, traditionalist, Baptist, who believe that Christ truly loves everybody, died for everybody, desires everybody to be saved, they would fall under the general use of the term. So I want to give you uh, the TULIP. It's an acronym. You're probably familiar with it. But just to briefly, uh, because I don't know at various levels you may have of understanding of Calvinism. So this this is used by both Calvinist and non-Calvinist to kind of lay out the general map of Calvinism. So the TULIP, uh, uh, T stands for total depravity. And that means that man is so messed up, he can't do anything to be involved in the initial stage of salvation. He has to have a new nature or a new work of God before he can do anything of any spiritual value. And so that's total depravity. Now let me say, I believe in total depravity. I wouldn't define it as Calvinism, but I'm not willing to give up the term. The reason is because if you don't have total depravity, the only thing it seems to me that's left is partial depravity. And that's not a biblical position in my estimation. So I believe in total depravity, but just because I do, you can't imbue that with Calvinist understanding. And I actually reject every part of the tulip and the soil and the petals. <laughs> I reject it all. So don't think that I'm trying to be close to a Calvinist. I, I'm not at all in any sense once all the entailments and assumptions are understood. And then the second thing, the U, is unconditional election. And that is that God, without any condition has chosen these people to be his elect. But there's nothing in them. There's nothing happened. There's no condition, period. It is unconditional. And then there's limited atonement. And that is where Christ died effectively only for the elect, the unconditionally elect. He did not die that same way for the non-elect. So their sins have not been dealt with. So John 1.29, when John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Calvinism, it is that he took away the sin of the elect. Because the sin of the non-elect has not been dealt with. With the elect, it has been dealt with. It's no longer a problem. And then the fourth one is irresistible grace. And that's where God moves in irresistibly and overpowers the lost elect and causes them to be regenerated. Sometimes it's uh, quickened, uh, renovated, just all kinds of words are used. But it's where God does a work that changes the nature and the past of the person so that that person can now believe. Prior to that work, they couldn't believe. And that's the monergistic, you hear Calvinists, 
salvation's monergistic. Well, technically, that's not exactly right. The regeneration is monergistic. Once that change has happened, then the Calvinist would say that you can freely believe. So we get into quandaries because we don't recognize that sequence. It's monergistic, then it's uh, synergistic. It's monergistic to this new work that changes the past so the person can believe, the elect, and then they will freely believe. So if you say to a Calvinist, well, you believe God forces you to believe. No, that's not true. They really don't. But if you understand the sequence, you can see that. The, the, and, and by the way, once you understand these four things, no one, no one hears the gospel and believes, period. No one. The non-elect never can. And the elect can't until this work is done. So no one just hears the gospel and then chooses to believe. And then the last uh, one is the perseverance of the saints. And, and I don't deal with that much because it's not as problematic, but it's not reducible to uh, security of the believer. But many of them had both components. The perseverance was the demonstration that you were saved. That would demonstrate you were saved, but you were also preserved. And so that one is not as much of a problem, at least for Baptists. So why is, uh, why is it so prevalent? Why do we have Calvinism so prevalent? Well, a few things. Number one, there, there's the ebb and flow of history. So a lot of things that happen in Christianity or anywhere, there's just an ebb and flow. And so even Dr. Al Mohler and others uh, admit that there have been four times that Calvinism was in the ascendancy, which it is right now. So, but it doesn't stay there. Now, we can talk about later why that might be. So it rises, but it's not sustainable. But even in its ascendancy, you must understand on the global scale of Christianity, both historically and today, it is a very minor view. It always remains a minor view, but it does go up and down. And another reason is there are some appealing characteristics to the system of Calvinism. Um, they, they, to me, some of them are is they, they try to lay it out systematically. If you're a systematic thinker, if you like to uh, answer tough questions, so election, predestination, foreknowledge, things like that. They, they seek to address those things, and I find that to be attractive. They don't skirt them or you know, act like they don't exist. And uh, talking about God's sovereignty, and, and you could contrast that with what's called open theism. And so there are just some appealing things to Calvinism that, that draws people to it. Another thing is that there are a number of well-known, prominent, godly, used of God uh, men and women, but you know John MacArthur, John Piper, uh, J.I. Packer. I mean, there are just a host of them that are godly, good teachers, and so that draws people to it as well. And then there are just voluminous writings and internet dominance. If you look up a subject, if you act, look up depravity, salvation, a Calvinist site will come up because they've done very well at doing that. So that, I would say that's to their uh, credit. And then uh, they double talk. That's the only negative thing I would say. And so I'll use that term later as well. But by double talk, I'm not dealing with motives. I, I'm dealing with they, they, are, they, they reject libertarian freedom 
but they speak libertarianly quite a bit. So in other words, you, you, we used to call them uh, gentle Calvinists, but it's really not gentle at all. It's inconsistent in Calvinism. So they speak as though you have these choices, but really you didn't. And so I'll, that'll become more clear to you as we go along. Uh, why is it important? Well, it's important because the two most important things in this order, what a person thinks about God and what a person thinks about a human being, are the two most important things they ever think about. Because everything is a derivative of that. And even what you think about man, see, is a derivative of God. So whether you're an atheist or a Hindu or a Christian or just a theist, it is, those are the two most important things. Um, so this subject, it falls under the category, generally speaking, of soteriology, of salvation. But it really is much broader, and, and I probably won't have time, but if you think about Calvinism expansively, once you get everything in line, it affects everything. There's nothing off limits. Your child rearing would be different. Your marriage would be everything, every single thing. And so in Christianity, we talk about things being primary issues. If you don't agree, it's heretical. And then there are secondary, tertiary, and so forth. So where I am on this is I, I say that this issue of the Calvinist discussion is a, I call it, a, it's a tertium quid, which means it's in between a primary and a secondary. It's not primary if you disagree with me, that's heretical, but I just can't put it in the category of how you do church or your view of eschatology, because when you talk about this soteriological uh, dispute, it, you cannot help but go back to who is God. You always end up back there. And therefore, I can't, it's not heretical, but it's so serious that I can't put it in a secondary or tertiary uh, thing. So my pilgrimage, I just want to share with you a minute. So I was a Calvinist for 33 years. And I was, uh, I, I, the way I got into it was I, I got saved, came into Baptist life, and I told Dr. Patterson this. I said, what it appeared like to me is, you know, I went to the bookstore, and so I got some theology books, and the one the guy said was good was Lewis Berry Chafer's eight-volume set, and that's four-point Calvinism. So I read it three times, and then I bought, you know, Shedd, and then I bought Hodge, and, and I just kept reading and reading and ended up being a four-point Calvinist for 33 years. And I told him, I said, well, what it looked like to me was that if you're a Baptist, you're a Calvinist of some kind, because Arminian are, are over here. And so the question is, it's not a question of whether you're a Calvinist, it's what kind. Are you a 5.4 point, 3 point, 2 point, 1 point? And 1 through 3 don't make any sense once you understand it. I, I've held all those positions, by the way. So when I'm saying these things, I'm actually talking about me. And it's quite interesting sometimes that I, I tell somebody, you know, I was a Calvinist for 33 years. And then the next thing they'll say, well, how could they be so stupid to believe those things? And I'm thinking, I just told you I was one, you know? So it's kind of an awkward moment there when we're trying to develop a relationship. And uh, so anyway, I, for 20 years, I was undaunted. I I didn't waver at all, and when I went to the church I'm in now, I told them, I said, I'm a four-point Calvinist. It was one of the first things I told the committee and the leaders and everybody. 
and preach from that vantage point. Now, I was inconsistent, but my contention is all Calvinists are inconsistent. I don't think you can be consistent with it, so I don't say that again, dealing with motives or character. I just think it's the nature of the beast. You can't actually do it. But uh, I spent about 13 years reflecting on questions that had developed in my mind. I'd have a question, I'd just throw it in a folder because I didn't have time to research it properly. And so when I came to Trinity, I just took time as I had it to walk through these questions. And eventually, you know, I was moving from uh, four to three and a half to three and a quarter to three, and I was kind of going down the continuum. And so anyway, decided to write a book for my church and it's called Reflections of a Disenchanted Calvinist. And that's why, if you, if you were to look at it, it has a literary peculiarity in that you could read the last chapter and not read any other chapter because it was designed like a pastor answering questions. So if you want to know where children went when they died or some, what do you think about predestination? So it's like a pastor standing at the back of the church and they ask you, you know, what do you think about predestination? You got about 20 seconds to answer it. And so the book was to help out in that but in the process of writing it and clarifying my thoughts by writing them all down in some kind of uh, uh, composite uh, system, I moved along and finally the book was going to be entitled Reflections of a Minor Calvinist because I moved from a 4.32 and I still held on. By the time I got to the end of it, I said, Lord, I'm not a Calvinist. I can't claim that because I reject the basics. And some people use the term Calvinist, but they're not Calvinists because they've rejected the, the uh, essentials. And so it became, I mean, right at the last minute, reflections of a disenchanted Calvinist. It was a very lonely time. It was a very difficult time because I had been one for 33 years. And now I'm saying I got it wrong. And now all the people that I associated with where did I go? And what about the questions I had about the side that wasn't Calvinist? I didn't have all those answered. And so for the last number of years, I've been trying to answer the questions to challenge Calvinism more, but also answer the questions, whatever tough questions they've posed to me, and I don't know all the answers. <clears throat> but it, those that have been posed uh, have appeared either in articles I've written or the book, Does God Love All or Some? That's what that's about, is challenging them more to be clear on what they believe and then to answer the tough questions that have been posed to me. And I actually am working on another book right now, and I'm actually writing a chapter for another book on it, and then I have enough research for another book. So I haven't got it all even out there yet, and there is a lot to deal with, but that's where I am at this time. Um, I don't ever deal with hyper-Calvinism, if you know what that is, so I never go there. The only time I would mention a hyper-Calvinist, uh, and that has what to do with the order of decrees, you think, but is when it would be consonant, their belief would be consonant with uh, what we call mainstream Calvinists, which would be four and five point Calvinists. I would say to you that all Calvinists believe in double predestination, and I remember being a Calvinist, and I would say, no, I don't believe in predestination of the dams. But, but that was because I was inconsistent. And so Calvinists say that because you, you do believe in it. You either believe in that God actively did it or he passively did it or consequently. But you just can't escape that God has determined where everyone will spend eternity 
only because it pleased him, as I'll show you as we go along. Uh, I am not anti-Calvinist. I love and appreciate, I have many friends that are Calvinist. I interact with them all the time. I was a Calvinist, so I mean all my theology books, but one or two are Calvinist. Uh, my commentaries, my associates for decades. I have Calvinists in my church who remain after I've gone through this uh, change and so forth. So I love my Calvinist brothers and sisters. I will have to admit, uh, for truth's sake, that there are some I don't actually like. <laughs> but that's true of non-Calvinist extensivists. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I love them as brothers and sisters. I just don't know if I want to go hang out with them uh, because they can be uh, argumentative sometimes. My general assumption is that a Calvinist loves God just as much as the person who's not a Calvinist extensivist. I loved God just as much when I was a Calvinist as I do now. So there's no issue of motive and so forth. So I'm going to try to be clarifying because that's my goal in what I do. All my writings and everything, I never attack the Calvinist. I'm never dealing with motives. I'm always trying to clarify so that Calvinists understand what they actually believe with the entailments and assumptions, and they speak in such a way that the people to whom they speak understand it. People who are considering going into Calvinism understand what they're getting, what they're actually buying into, and then I'm asking for consistency. And they would say that total depravity is the linchpin. I don't believe that is the linchpin. I think the linchpin is unconditional election. Once you accept unconditional election, if you look at the tulip, then the question is one of consistency from there on. So as I said, I believe in total depravity that man cannot come without a work of grace. That's what Calvinism says. The difference is Calvinism says the work is irresistible and selective, and I would say it's enabling and it's extensive, but it all flows out of grace. Uh, from a principle of interpretation, uh, so I hold to the historical grammatical, but <clears throat> I have always approached the scripture, although as a Calvinist, I now look back in my soteriology, I didn't do this. And that is that I approach it from a simple understanding, not simplistic. Simplistic is lucky dipping, you know, and picking out a scripture and not caring. What I mean by simple is it pretty much means what it says. Once you study grammar, context, history, culture. It is. You don't have to strain the meaning of a word or find some uh, wild thing to make it fit. You don't have to superimpose theology on it. You can just read it. And that comes from the belief that I think the scripture is exoteric, not esoteric. Exoteric, it is for everyone. Esoteric, it's only for the initiated. And you cannot possibly understand the scripture from a Calvinist standpoint, unless you're a Calvinist and you have to buy into the system. So I think that violates that. There are five areas that I'll touch on all of these. I, I won't get exhaustively, but I'll touch on them. The, the first one is the view of moral freedom, and that's going to be the difficult one. So I'm going to ask you to hang in there with me and trust me that it's not that heavy all the way through. And then we're going to look at the definitions that Calvinism uses, because if Calvinism has defined the word correctly, then Calvinism is the only game in town. And then we'll look at the language barrier, that is that you don't really 
understand what Calvinism believes by what they say. And again, never talking about motive. And then the double talk, that's speaking libertarianly as though you have a choice when in Calvinism you actually do not have a choice in any matter, period. And then uh, we will look at uh, the issue of mystery. So what are they, they always say it's a mystery. They have these things that we would call them contradictions in any other setting, but they're called mysteries, inscrutable mysteries. So God only chooses some when he could have chosen everybody, but he loves everybody and wants them all to be saved. That doesn't make sense. It's a mystery. No, it's a contradiction. And that's what you have to do. They're what I call Calvinistically generated mysteries. If you leave Calvinism, the mystery no longer exists. All right, so this is deep, and this is about contrasting Calvinism's compatible view of moral freedom with extensivism's view, which is libertarianism. So it's compatible versus libertarian. These are moral views about is man morally responsible? They're the most, by the philosophers that are on the world stage debating this, they say it's the number one debated issue of the 20th century in philosophy. And so they're philosophical concepts, but we use them in Christianity as well. So there are basically three. The first one's called determinism. Determinism says that everything is determined so that you never could in any moral moment choose differently than you chose. Therefore, man is not morally responsible for his choices. Okay? If everything's determined, you couldn't have chosen differently. You may have felt like you could, but it was a subjective feeling. It's not an actual. You couldn't. So therefore, man's not responsible. Neither Calvinism nor extensivism holds to that view, but it is a view on the world stage. The, the second view is called compatibilism. And compatibilism is the view of knowledgeable Calvinist. So I only really deal with knowledgeable and those that seek to be consistent. So you can find somebody claiming to be a Calvinist, a friend of yours, and they say, well, I don't believe that. Well, I'm not... I'm just trying to deal with the, the ones who truly understand Calvinism. Because again, you can find people saying all kinds of things, but they're not consistent with true, consistent, or seek to be consistent Calvinism. So uh, compatibilism says that moral responsibility and determinism are compatible, hence the name. That's where you get the name. So determinism says moral responsibility and determinism are not compatible, thus man is not responsible for his actions. But compatibilism says determinism and moral responsibility are compatible, and thus you get the name. So in compatibilism, it says everything is determined, micro-determined, just like in hard determinism. So William James was a philosopher and a psychologist at the turn of the 20th century, and he made a distinction between determinism, and he called it hard determinism, and then compatibilism is called soft determinism. And that's a little misleading because compatibilism's determinism is no less determined 
than hard determinism. They're exactly the same. So you'll find many Calvinists, I did this. So when I say many, you can always insert, and he did this. Because I did it all. And I used to say, well, I'm a soft determinist. And what you're saying is that you don't really believe everything's micro-determined. But that's not true. The soft comes in because, remember, determinism says you, you are not morally responsible, and compatibilism says you are. How you become morally responsible, though everything is micro-determined, so you never could choose to do anything other than what you did, even though you think you could and you experience, but it's a subjective. It's not objective. You couldn't actually have done it. It's all been micro-determined. But as long as you choose according to your greatest desire, you are considered to have made a free choice. So that's how compatibilism, so you hear Calvinists that know what they're talking about, they'll say, well, as long as you choose according to your greatest desire, then you're morally responsible. The entailment of that is, and that's true, by the way, that's why it's wrong to say you Calvinists believe that God forces you to believe because it's not according to compatibilism. Their past determined their desire from which they freely believe. But they do freely believe. But in the moral moment of decision, they could have not chosen, they could not have chosen differently. So it was all determined. They can experience deliberation. They can experience as though they could have done this or could have done this. But in actuality, what was determined to happen will happen. So determinative antecedents, whatever they may be, your past, your nature, they determine your desire. So your desire is determined, your greatest desire, but you freely choose from that. So again, you have to get the sequence right and compatibilism. So every thought is micro-determined. Where your hand is right now, where you're sitting, if you're holding a pencil, not holding a pencil, if you think I'm a nut, you don't think I'm a nut, if you're prepared for the test, if you're not prepared for the test, it's all determined. And any sense that you have that you made decisions that brought that about, that is an illusion. It was all determined from eternity past. So people like Calvinists, like D.A. Carson, they'll try to explain it and they'll say, well, I'm a compatibilist. Now, he knows what it means, and he'll say that sometime. But then he'll say, because what we mean by that, it's compatible with God's sovereignty. So you'll hear compatibilists, or, uh, Calvinists say that. But that's not the definition of Calvinism. That's a belief about Calvinism. But those of us that are extensivists, we believe that libertarian freedom is compatible with God's sovereignty as well, as long as it's properly understood. So according to compatibilism, Calvinism, man makes a free choice so long as he chooses according to his greatest desire. And you'll hear that over and over. What you won't hear generally is the entailment of that is that the desire is determined. And the greatest desire before that was determined. And it goes all the way back to the beginning. So every thought, every idea. So God knows in Calvinism what will happen because he determined everything to happen. 
So he knows what he determined and he determined what he knows. And so how he knows you're here and what you're doing and how he's always known that is because he determined you would be doing precisely in every way. Millard Erickson is a moderate Calvinist and he said, if I move my right finger like that, it was determined. So I'm not overstating this. Matter of fact, I can't state it uh, enough. So in, in theology, we maintain an asymmetrical relationship of God to good and sin or evil. So God is related to good in that he brings it about, but he's not related to evil or sin in that way. He is totally separate. He's not culpable. However, in compatibilism, I hope you can see that man can be the, the what we call the proximate cause. So if I threw this book over there, in Calvinism with determinism, I was the proximate cause. But then you would say, why did you do that? Well, it was my greatest desire. But where'd that, and we have to go back so that God is the ultimate cause. He is the ultimate cause of every single thing, every thought, every action. And so from a compatible viewpoint, whatever is going on today is precisely the way it's supposed to be according to God. So most Calvinists don't follow that back and most don't understand it. And when we're talking to them, we give in on it and we let them start talking libertarianly, but that breaks the discussion down. So I would say that most Calvinists do not understand or many of them fully and most do not speak consistently with it and I have never met one, and I don't think there is one, but I can't say because I haven't been everywhere, but that lives and speaks and writes and prays consistent with compatibilism all the time. I think it's impossible. And there are some determinists that admit that. We believe in determinism and on and on, we're committed to it, but then we leave our office and we live like a libertarian because it's impossible to live that way. So if you took Adam and Eve and you applied it to that, in the garden, Adam and Eve freely chose to eat of the fruit and sin. Okay? So that's according to Calvinism. So if you said God caused you to do that, that would be an error because compatibilism, remember, has a sequence. However, the reason they chose to eat of the fruit, and at the moral moment of decision they could not have chosen not to, was because of their greatest desire, and their greatest de desire was determined by their past and nature. And you keep going back, and you ultimately come to the ultimate, the one who's ultimately responsible, and that's God. So in the real sense, God desired Adam and Eve to sin. And that's why they would refer to this as a mystery. We don't understand it. We can't explain it because you have the good, holy God true, because you say, well, how could he have done it different? If he truly desired that they not sin, he could have given them a moral, uh, compatible moral freedom with their greatest desire to not choose to sin. So he could have done that uh, very easily. So in, in uh, Calvinism, salvation is not forced, but regeneration is but they freely believe unto salvation. And then, so compatibilism has the principle, what we call voluntariness, the voluntary principle. They act voluntarily. They freely choose according to their 
graces are. It does not have the principle of origination. Origination means that you come here, and voluntary means your greatest desire would be go right, and you sent you could have gone left, but you couldn't. It was determined that you go right. But they don't, so they don't have the principle of origination where libertarian, you could actually go left or right, and whichever way you choose establishes a new sequence, new possibilities. So the person who doesn't get saved goes down this road. If they would have gotten saved, it would have been a whole new set of sequence of events and possibilities and so forth. So that brings me to uh, libertarianism. And libertarian freedom says that determinism and moral responsibility are not compatible. So libertarian freedom says that man, mankind, given his same past and nature, can, in some scenarios, maybe most scenarios, choose to act or refrain. He could choose to do this, or do that. Not in every scenario, but at least in some or most scenarios, that man has objective deliberation, and he's thinking about which choice, and if he chose to go right, he could have gone left. And if he went left, he could have gone right. And that doesn't exist in compatibilism. So when you're talking about libertarian and, and uh I have, not, I have not yet heard a Calvinist explain libertarian moral freedom accurately. It is normally done in a very trite way and a very, uh, and this goes back, I mean, you can go back and read uh, Strong and he's trying to explain it and they just don't do it as it's supposed to be. When I speak about compatibilism and I've had people follow me and those that are knowledgeable Calvinists never challenge what I'm saying about compatibilism because it is precisely correct, because I don't have any reason. I don't want to misrepresent it. I think if I represent it the way they really believe, more people will see what Calvinism actually is. Maybe wrong, but that's my belief. So in the garden, Adam had a range of options. Once he sinned, he didn't lose his free will. He didn't lose his libertarian freedom, his otherwise choice. He lost that range of options. The range of options changed, but he still had his libertarian freedom. What he had in the garden was creative grace. He didn't earn any of that, or Eve, but God gave it by grace. Once he sinned, that creative grace was not enough for him to be able to make a spiritually restorative decision, meaning he couldn't fix the problem, right? Something had to happen. So, can I talk while you're, can you hear me back there? Yeah. I hope I don't yell about the time this thing goes on. <coughs> but it may wake you up, I don't know. So, uh, fallen man could still choose between options, his, just his range of options changes. And I would say that he could not make a spiritually restorative or righteous decision without enabling grace or redemptive grace. And this gets back to God having a coextensive creation redemption plan. He didn't decide to redeem and said, I think I'll create some people. And he didn't decide to create 
and say, I think I'll redeem some people. It's coextensive. He always knew he would create humans who would fall. In a libertarian, they did not have to, but he knew they would choose to, and he would redeem them. So there is creative grace and redemptive grace. So in libertarian, you have the principle of voluntariness. We do it voluntarily, but you have the principle of origination. You can originate a new sequence of events, just what you think is happening when you're making decisions. You think if you do this, there are consequences, and you can do it, so you need to weigh it out, and we believe that experience is real. In libertarian freedom, man is what we call agent causation or efficient cause. So again, in compatibilism, if I threw the Bible over here, you say, who did that? I did it. I'm the proximate cause, but you know that I did it because of my greatest desire, and my greatest desire was determined. So what determines? See, and we keep going back. We ultimately get back to God. With libertarian freedom, when God created mankind with libertarian freedom, that person becomes not just the proximate cause, but the efficient cause. So I throw the book over there, and you say, who did that? And I say, I did it. That's the end of the discussion, because I'm the efficient cause. God gave us that ability but I have that ability to make these decisions and they bring about consequences and possibilities. So with libertarian freedom, you have to understand there is no guarantee. This is the problem. You can't create, I, I don't know of any philosopher that argues that you can, and remember these are philosophical issues we're dealing with now, that you can, no philosopher on the world stage of, of moral freedom that I know of argues that you can create a being who has true libertarian freedom, could choose to do this or do that, if sin is an option and guarantee he will not choose that option. So therefore, you can't create a perfect world that stays perfect with libertarian free beings because you can't guarantee it. This is what uh, Alvin Plantica deals with in Transworld Depravity. This is what he's talking about. So how do you overcome that? Only person that can overcome it is God. And that's through the coextensive creation redemption plan. And so we can talk later, but when you go to heaven, you're still going to have free will. You're not going to be like Adam. A lot's happened between Adam and us getting to heaven. But there are no guaranteed uh, things. So therefore, with compatibilism, when man sinned, God had to truly desire it because he set up this trajectory with Libertarian freedom, God could truly, truly, truly desire that man not sin. That's his heart. And he's a holy God, and he never desires sin. So Libertarian explains that. Uh, let me tell you a few things it doesn't mean that you'll hear. It doesn't mean that you can do anything. So you'll hear Calvinists say, well, you just believe you can do anything. No, we don't. There's a range of options. And then it doesn't mean that if someone overrides your free will, you lose your free will. So they'll say, so you're sovereign. I mean, nobody, no, it doesn't have anything to do with that. God can override it anytime he wants. He's sovereign. He did with uh, Nebuchadnezzar when he sent him out into the wilderness. But people can override your freedom. If somebody uses their freedom to rob something, they did freely choose to do that. But then when we take them to prison, we are overriding their freedom because they do not want to go. Once they get in their cell, they still have 
libertarian moral freedom, they didn't lose it. The range of options changed. And by the way, the range of options changes all the time. It changes with your age. You're in America. Somebody in, in a part of Africa, they don't have the range of options you have, but they still have libertarian freedom. As you're a six-year-old, you don't have the range of options of a 20-year-old. And I can do things today that I couldn't do when I was 20, and there are some things I could do when I was 20, and I can't do them today. The range of options is always changing, but that doesn't tell you whether a person has libertarian freedom. It is whether or not they can choose this or that, and whatever they did choose, they could have chosen differently in some uh, scenarios. And then <clears throat> they say, well, you believe it's sovereign and uh, it's a force and all this. No, libertarian freedom is a force. When people make decisions, there are consequences. But remember, it's a force like all other created forces. It's not a rogue force. It didn't arise on its own. It was created by God for his glory. Just like all other forces. And he can contravene any force at any time he wants because he is sovereign. And then they say, well, why did you make that decision? Well, that's the nature of libertarian freedom, but we can be influenced and we can be strongly influenced. And it can even be uh, emotions, past, character, uh, desires, goals, all of that mixed together when we're making a decision, but the free being does have a reason. They may regret it later, but they did have a reason. So in the moral moment of decision, in some scenarios, given the same past, you could choose this or that, and whatever you did choose, you could have chosen differently, and that's not true in Calvinism. So, let me, so that's definitionally, and so let me try to help you with this. So experientially, let me give it to you. So you're here today, so I'm going to use you, and I'm so sad you may want to change seats next hour, I don't know. I hope everybody doesn't go sit over here, but... So you'll be the non-elect today, and then you'll be the, the, the uh, compatible moral freedom people, and then you'll be the libertarian, and you'll be the uh, unconditionally elect. And I have nothing to do with your salvation or anything else. It's just for us to help us. So uh, by compatible moral freedom, you're here, and where you're sitting, and by whom you're sitting, and what you're doing at this very second, and what you think, you feel like you deliberated, and you are making choices between this and that, but you're actually not. It was all determined, and God knew precisely what you would be doing at this specific second because he determined it from eternity past. Even if you thought you were going to stop at the store before you came today, and then you said, no, I'll just do that afterwards, and you feel like you really deliberated and made a decision, but no, it was always determined you would be here. That was a subjective deliberation. You, on the other hand, you were at home and you thought about whether you would go to the store or not and you decided you'll go afterwards and actually you could have gone before, but now you're going to go after. And when you came in, you looked at different seats and you thought about, well, I'm going to sit here or sit with this person or I want to be up close or far back. And you actually did that and made decisions. That's how that plays out experientially. What you're sensing about deliberating and Choosing between options is real. What you're sensing about it is subjective. So let me use the wedding. So uh, men, and, and you may not be married, maybe you are, but some of you that aren't married, uh, one day, you know, you're going to stand before the preacher 
And he's going to ask you, do you take this woman to be your lawful wedded wife? And you're going to be looking at her. And her eyes are twinkling. And there's a blush in her cheeks. And she's smiling. And it's a pretty good moment. And the libertarian guy is going to go, I do. And I'm telling you, she is rapturously taken to the heavens because she knows that you just chose her and you could have chosen many other people. But you chose her for the rest of your life. And the honeymoon's going to go okay. It's going to be all right. Men, that may be your finest hour of your life. But down the street, there's a compatibilist getting married. And so they're standing before the preacher, and the preacher looks at the young man and says, do you take this woman to be your lawful wedded wife? And he looks at her, and the twinkle's there, and the blushing's there, and he says, I do. But if full disclosure prevails, he must say, but honey, you know I cannot not say I do. <laughs> I mean, I do choose you, but I, I was determined to choose you. I mean, I can't choose anybody else. I mean, I'm here because it's been determined, and, and you understand, don't you? Uh, probably not. And I'm going to suggest that there's going to be a little less honey on the honeymoon. That's what's going to happen. That's the way those two systems work. And then historically, uh, let me give you this. Ken Wilson, he's an orthopedic surgeon and practicing, and he had nothing else to do, so he went back to Oxford and got a PhD, and his dissertation was on Augustine's conversion from traditional free will choice to non-free will. He is one of only a few, two or three people, who have ever read all of Augustine's work and the original language in chronological order. His research is the only research that's been done that read it in chronological order in the original language, considering his five final uh, doctrines. He read all of the apostolic fathers. He studied all of the parallel religions and cults like Stoicism, Manichaeism, which uh, Augustine was, and he remained a Stoic all of his life, and uh, uh, Gnosticism and Neoplatonism and so forth. So, he, but he's written, he's put his dissertation out, and, and you can buy it, it's incredible, but he also has an abbreviated form that's uh, very good as well. But here's what he writes of the church fathers. Early Christian authors unanimously taught relational, divine, eternal predetermination. God elected persons of salvation based upon foreknowledge of their faith. Of the 84 pre-Augustine fathers or authors, so there are 84 of them, he studied from 95 A.D. to 430, or B.A.D., yeah, B. 430 B.A.D., he says E.C., and I don't like using that, so over 50 addressed the topic. So 50 of the fathers addressed the topic of free will and predestination. All of these early Christian authors championed traditional free choice and relational predestination where God considered your choice against the pagan, heretical, divine, unilateral predetermination of individuals' eternal destinies. 
I want you to just think for just a moment because we have to move on. But for the first three and a half centuries, including Augustine, by the way, no one taught divine, determined, eternal state of individuals except Manichaeism, Stoicism, and cults. No one. Not one church father for three and a half centuries. And, and Augustine argued against Manichaeism until he converted to believing in unilateral determinism. And by the way, he was a Manichaean for uh, 10 years. So that is a very powerful thing. When you hear Calvinists, they do this and they don't even think about it. And I did it. Well, in church history, church history, but actually most of the time they're just going back to the Reformation. And sometimes they'll reach back to Augustine. Rarely will they ever go back. Matter of fact, after he did his research and David Allen did his research and their books were published, Michael Horton, who's a very solid, uh, godly guy, uh, strong Calvinist, he had in his book some references to church fathers that he was trying to say did teach uh, determinism like Augustine and Calvin. And after their research came out, when his was updated, it removed those. But Lorraine, uh, Lorraine Bodner, who's a Calvinist theologian, passed away historian, so this is a Calvinist. The earlier church fathers taught that salvation was through Christ, yet they assumed that man had full power to accept or reject the gospel. Some of their writings contain passages in which the sovereignty of God is recognized, yet alongside of those are others which teach the absolute freedom of the human will. So that's the first three and a half centuries. So this was a later development that comes straight out of Manichaeism and so forth. Scripturally, and I, I would end this section with this, so we go back to Adam and Eve. So with compatibilism, they freely chose to sin, but they could not have not chosen. And I use a double negative, your grammar, I'm sorry I do it for emphasis. They could not have not chosen to because their past had determined, there are determinative antecedents that determine what your desire will be from which you will choose. So therefore, it is inescapable, it's an entailment that God did in fact desire that they sin and all of the rivers of tears and all of the tragedies and everything you see. And if a man rapes a woman, he was determined to do it. And if the woman's raped, she was determined to be raped. And if there's somebody trying to defend, that person was determined to defend. But none of them could have chosen otherwise. Just think through the vast scenarios of any day. But this carries right on into your Christianity because you never lose your compatible moral freedom. So the person who prays, he was determined to pray. The person who doesn't pray, he was determined to do that. The person who witnesses, determined to do that. On and on it goes. The Christian that never uh, really serves, they were determined. Yet you understand it just turns everything upside down. You can't have a simple reading of the scripture in any sense. This is why you'll never find them speaking consistently with that. But from a libertarian freedom, God truly desired that they not sin. They had the ability, so they could have chosen to sin or not to sin, and whatever they did, they could have chosen otherwise. And he gave them every 
every aspect of the environment would have drawn them to holiness. In other words, they didn't have to sin, but they freely chose to sin, and that's part of the plan of love and all of these other things that plays out in this. So I want you to look at that John 20 and uh, verse that I, I gave you. And John 20, so if you take these two things and you put them together in verse 30 and 31, it says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe. So why did you write this, John? Well, I wrote it so you could read this, and I'm, it seems like anybody who's reading this is the you. So you could read this and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by that believing, you may have life in his name. That's, so if you want to understand John, you have to understand he explained why it's all here, why some was left out, why this was left, is so that you would read it, and you would believe, and you would have eternal life. Did you know in Calvinism, the non-elect can never read that and believe and have eternal life? They can never do it. John says, that's my purpose. And it looks like the you is anybody reading it, but it's not true. But the entailment of Calvinism is the elect can't read it and be saved. Nobody can read that in Calvinism and be saved. Because you have to have a new nature that emanates a new desire before you would ever believe because of sinful person, and you'll hear Calvinists over and over, this is their total depravity. They can't do anything in cooperation with God. Nothing affects election. It is unconditional. And if you want to know what unconditional means, think of Aristotle. He said nothing, so nothing, there's nothing that can happen. It's unconditional. Nothing is what a box of rocks dreams about. And that's pretty nothing. There's nothing. So no one can read that once the Calvinist has been regenerated or given this new desire, this new past, then he can read and believe. But he can't read it and not believe. Because again, it's all determined. So that walks us through this first part, and that takes a little while. We'll go faster, so thanks. <laughs>